All right, welcome back to another installment of the Gopher Coffee Shop Podcast. I'm Ryan Miller. And I'm Brad Carlson. And uh, today, Brad, we sit uh, here aside the uh, Cannon River on the North Shore in Faribault on the outside in a very, very beautiful October day. Yeah, it's been nice uh, being able to do some of this recording outdoors, the extent to which we've been able to do that. Uh, uh, it's going to get cold when we start recording outdoors here in November and December, but I guess we'll just soldier on through. We'll have to buy more winter gear for that, I guess. So. Yeah, well, and, and uh, I've got plenty of snowmobile masks, and so I guess I don't know if, how well those uh, work uh, for muffling the sound, but I guess we'll find out, huh? Yeah. So you are going to hear a little bit of wind, and uh, maybe some of our resident Canadian geese here uh, on the reservoir, uh, they're kind of schooling up. Hiding out from my uh, teenage uh, sons who are uh, avidly out looking for them, despite the fact I've... I've uh, suggested that we really don't need a whole lot more meat in the freezer. <laughs> All right. With, well, with that, uh, today we've got a special guest with us um, who's, uh, I guess, a uh, first-time guest as well as a relatively new faculty member in the Department of Agronomy in St. Paul. Uh, we got to welcome uh, Devlin Sarangi. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Ryan and Brad, and thanks. So, Devlin... Uh, you 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 started uh, a faculty position here at the U, um, in probably one of the weirdest circumstances ever. With uh, uh, right about the time you were were getting the position and, and coming to the final arrangement or whatever, we kind of entered this kind of uh, uncertain shutdown phase with different shifting parts with restrictions on travel and such. And so, um, I imagine that's been kind of challenging. Yes, uh, it is a little bit challenging, and I can remember back in March when I was accepting this offer that time, it was probably the first time when the whole country was kind of shutting down for a couple of weeks. And then I started here in late July, and when I was traveling, I was a little bit hesitant to move and travel with a family, but... Uh, I made it, and I'm here, and uh, so I'm here to help and the Minnesota stakeholders. It's only going to go up from here. <laughs> it, it can only get better. Yeah, it can only get better. So uh, we're excited to have you on board. Um, you're in the, the weed scientist position in, in St. Paul. Kind of, uh, I always hate to, to say this kind of uh, uh, thing, but, you know, the position that Jeff Gonzalez was in, it's kind of kind of that thing, but it's going to be your own thing because it's going to be your own uh, research and outreach program. But so, Sort of the circle of life for this podcast. We recorded Jeff uh, kind of as he was uh, just about done, and now we're recording you as you're brand new. Yeah, I mean, uh, this is a big position, and when I was a grad student at uh, University of Nebraska, I had a chance to talk with Jeff a couple times during the uh, different conferences, and uh, it's a big switch to fill in, but I don't even try to do that because I'll just do my job, whatever it is, but I'm in touch with Jeff, and he's a kind of great mentor. Uh, not all the time I talk with him, but at least I talk with him once in a while, so... Yeah. Well, and, and having been an extension now for 26 years is sort of my observation as as people retire and leave and and uh, new people come and replace them. You don't really see those uh, positions like 
you know, tag you're it, you're running a relay in the same lane uh, because things change over the years and new people do start their their own uh, agendas, research agendas, their own programs, and and it's going to be different, and that's good uh, because uh, that that's the way we keep evolving as an organization too. Yeah, and I I do uh, do want to say I think it was your first day. You were out in the field recording video with, with Dave Nikolai and Jared? Yes, yes. That was that uh, herbicide mode of action uh, recording. I was with Dave and uh, Jared Goplin. So you hit the ground running, and, and we got that video now, and we're kind of working on putting some things together. So uh, there will be uh, some online presence with some of the work that you did that first day uh, when you started back in July in St. Paul there at what have, would have historically been our uh, egg professional field school, which has always been a great event and, and we really look forward to, to in future years having that thing again in person because it's a great opportunity to meet people yeah. uh, as well as interact with folks with a real hands-on learning kind of environment, real experiential and, and it's it's a great thing. Yeah, it's it just adds to some of the weirdness of this year that a lot of the things that you normally would be doing and working with uh, are, are, are different this year. Uh, I guess uh, the extent to which they come back to the way they've always been, um, you know, it'll be, you'll obviously, you'll still have another little period of adjustment to that. But on the other hand, uh, you know, some of these things also are going to transition. We don't really know exactly how or, or to what extent, but uh, um, I don't know. It's, it's, uh, it just, I guess, uh, for, for for lack of a better way of putting it and to throw a major cliche, it is what it is. <laughs> it is what it is. <laughs> so Devlin, uh, you know, you're, you're starting this position and uh, we know from some survey work we've done with farmers that kind of the, the top of the list in terms of their uh, agronomic, their management concerns is weed management. And so uh, as a weed scientist, uh, we're kind of interested, you know, how did you get your start in weed science? Where'd you, what was your first uh, foray into weed science? Yeah, so uh, I did my bachelor's and master's uh, in India. And in my master's, I was working on a crop nutrition project in organic system. And that time I can remember, like, it was a nightmare. There are a lot of, uh, it was a ho organic wheat and there are a lot of grass weed species that you cannot spray any herbicide or anything. So my supervisor used to tell me like every week go there and hand pull the, all the plots. And there are some help available definitely, but I used to do that. So I realized that importance of uh, weed management in any system, even if it is not organic. Uh, then I got, a, got an opportunity to work with uh, Dr. Amit Chala at uh, University of Nebraska-Lincoln. And I immediately took that opportunity and I uh, came to Lincoln, Nebraska and I did my PhD there. And most of my work there was like uh, management and biology, uh, understanding the biology and management of um, gl glyphosate resistant water hemp. So that was the, that time that was the bigger challenge in Nebraska and I believe it is still a big um, problem in Nebraska and they have Palmer Amaranth now so then I uh, took some opportunity like almost one year I was in Texas A&M and uh, 
I encountered the Palmer Amaranth there, and I worked with uh, Dr. Muthu Bhagavathian and there, and he's a weed ecologist, and I worked with him different ecology projects, seed bank dynamics projects. So, so that way I ended up uh, having a position uh, in a weed scientist position at University of Wyoming. And it was a station position, and I worked there a little bit, and then I moved to Twin Cities. So this is most of my background with weed science. Well, we, we certainly have plenty of water hemp. So, uh, you know, you'll, you'll be right at home with uh, working on that issue because it's something that continually seems to challenge us. And you drive around this time of year when fields are getting ready for harvest, well, they're being harvested, and, uh, and you can just see, you know, where water hemp issues popped up this year and and that it it continues to be a huge challenge i know earlier this fall uh, a a radio guy that we got to get you introduced to uh, jerry grosskreitz uh over here in kdhl radio he uh he and i were talking early in the summer probably i don't know mid-june or so and he's he was convinced that we had done such a, a much better job managing water hemp this year and you wait a few more weeks and uh and there they come you know poking their heads up above the uh the crop canopy and so um so that's going to be a, a continued challenge so um so i'll just add one thing here so before i was moving to twin cities i was talking with one of my uh, old friend from nebraska and uh, he he has some background in Midwest and I was talking with him like what could be the challenging species or the weed management challenges. So he told that water hemp is the biggest challenge but probably with the new extent technology, we took care of that problem pretty much and you'll see more fields are cleaned but probably that is not the case. This year I was driving around and I saw a lot of water hemp escapes. So I believe you're right that I have to deal with the water hemp issues next five, ten years, or probably more. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> Could be here in perpetuity. The uh, it's it is an interesting thing. So we've done a, a fair amount of work with with some of these newer technology and technology packages with herbicides, and um, you know I think one of the biggest challenges is that uh, the emergence pattern with water hemp. And so if we put our post-emergence control on, um, you know, if we, if we don't have a residual chemistry out there, it, it becomes challenging in terms of you're going to continue to see emergence after the fact um, once you've controlled the ones that are up. And another thing, I don't know how much experience or, or what, if you want to weigh in with an opinion here, but when we look at water hemp and, and the extend, so the dicamba technologies, um, I think there was a kind of a growers wanted to use it kind of like Roundup um, in terms of wait till the weeds get six inches tall or, or, or maybe a little taller. And I, I just I guess from my personal perspective, when I've seen it in control plots, when we wait longer like that, kind of just generally a bad idea. Well, uh, the thing is, I think uh, we should have learned from our mistake that we have made with the Roundup uh, in the past that we should not use a single sites of action or rely on only dicamba or 2,4-D to managing any weed species, even if it is uh, water hemp, palmer, or giant ragweed. So that's one key thing. And second thing is, you know, now uh, the metabolic resistance is coming. So, so metabolic resistance is a, you know, basically there is a group of 
uh, enzyme that is working behind this uh, resistance issues. So basically, your weed is resistant to certain herbicide, and it may be resistant to other chemistries, but that weed may not have experienced or exposed to that second chemistry. So that's a pretty tricky thing and complicated thing. So that's coming, and I think uh, that's how um, most of the weed scientists are concerned nowadays that uh, Previously, we used to talk about mutation, where like we know like this is uh, resistant to one or two herbicides. But now we are seeing more and more that metabolic resistance is coming. So I think it is very concerning, and that's why we are talking about like uh, integrated weed management, like supplement your herbicide with something else. Yeah, so that's uh, that's kind of, uh, I know you were talking on a, a video project that Seth was doing with the soybean uh, board with uh, foreign material, and I think you called this the, the many little hammers concept, so introducing more than just herbicides and thinking kind of outside the box, you know, you know, recognizing that uh, herbicides are a critical component and, we'll, you know, we'll, in conventional agriculture we'll be um, utilizing them quite, you know, not saying that we're dependent, but uh, they're going to be the the primary component. But then we have to start thinking outside the box in terms of what other things could you do to help manage weeds to kind of vary things yep. up. And I'm kind of fascinated by that too, uh, and Ryan. That's a topic we've talked about in the past uh, with pre related to precision agriculture, and that is uh, where do and where do you, Devlin, think about the future being? with respect to non-herbicide weed controls, the ability, for instance, to use sensing technology and then use something else, whether it's sandblasting or hot water or electricity or whatever, to actually physically kill the weed in another method because you identified it as a weed versus the crop. I mean, are we, are we close to that kind of technology or do we think that's still another maybe generation of farmer away? Well, we have to, explore all the possible options that we have in our toolbox and we cannot definitely move away from the herbicide because this is the biggest hammer and it is the most uh, effective tool we have right now but uh, the thing is we know that last 30 years we didn't get any new herbicide chemistry in the market so that's concerning. If you talk with the growers, they will tell you first thing, like if you ask them, what do you need from us? They will tell, bring a new herbicide because that's kind of an easy button and cost effective and much effective tool. But we know that it is not coming or if it is coming, we don't know how effective that new chemistry would be in the future. So that's why we need to uh, go back and rely on some of the old technology that we probably forgot like tillage, uh, doing some cover crop, which is continuous cover or green cover. 
and uh, new technology, something like you told about that remote sensing things. Yeah, you can probably explore something with a robot or maybe like spot application. If you uh, identify a resistant patch of weed, you can probably fly a drone and try to spray that patch. So there are multiple technologies, new and old, those are coming or that is already exist. So we need to explore all those things. and. Uh, probably this is the good time I would just talk about a little bit about that harvest weed seed control. In a previous podcast, you talked with Dr. Michael Walls from Australia, and he is one of the pioneer scientists who is working on that technology. So basically, the goal of this technology is to uh, take the weed seeds out of your field uh, during the crop harvest and somehow destruct that thing or destroy that thing. So basically, if you can destroy that uh, either by harvest weed seed control method or if you can put that in a chaff lining things, uh, probably you'll reduce your soil seed bank. So those are you know small tools. They may not be as effective as your herbicide, but still that, that will give you long-term sustainability and that will actually preserve your limited herbicide options. And I, I think one of the things too you mentioned earlier, this metabolic resistance concept is one of the most concerning things when we start to think about, well, if we bring a new product to market or a, a company develops a new product for use in the, in the farm, uh, you know, the chances are if, if we go down that road very far where we start to see metabolic resistance, Absolutely, yeah. And, and what's fascinating to me is uh, you talked about water hemp. Uh, uh, I, when I started my career uh, in, in extension, uh, I think it was one year prior to the introduction of Roundup Ready Crops. And so I think those came along in 96, if I'm correct. And and uh, the big weed problem at that point was water hemp. And so, uh, strangely enough, we went all the way through the entire uh, Roundup Ready glyphosate uh, resistant period and water hemp came right back out the other side as uh, one of the, the top weed problems. Again, it, it basically skipped that whole 25 years and came right roaring right back. Yeah, I, I love to talk about water hemp all the time because my PhD thesis was on water hemp. So it is a uh, like it is a species with all the desirable character that a weed species should have, like small seed size and then uh, long emergence period. It can emerge throughout the season. Then it 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 can outcross. So it has male and female plants are separate. So just wind pollinated. So suppose you have a uh, one registered male plant in your neighbor's uh, field and you got a female plant. So basically the pollen can fly and come to your, come and pollinate that plant you have in your field. And then, you know, one million seeds easily from that um, female plant. So I believe it, this plant has most of the characteristics that is desirable to be a weedy species. That's why it uh, survived throughout the Roundup Ready era. Yeah, that's, uh, that is interesting to think about it when we, we always talk about coming back to the biology and when you start to think about some of the characteristics of that weed is probably why why it continues to be such a big deal and uh, something else that just came to mind last week Brad we were talking with Jeff Coulter about phantom yield loss of in corn harvest and now I'm thinking about some of the what you just mentioned with the, the harvest weed seed control and one of the biggest challenges is going to be making sure the seed 
gets into the combine and through that cage mill to, to be destroyed. And so, uh, you know, if you look at a weed like water hemp, what, what do you think? I mean, if you, you know, we're just kind of, uh, supposing right now, but you know, how effective is something like that going to be? Do you think? So I think some study has been done, uh, in Illinois and I think Arkansas on water hemp and Palmer, those close to closely related species. And they found that if the uh, weed seeds are in the chaff line and um, chaff stream and it is passing through the cage mill, it can probably destroy more than 95 or 97 percent of the seeds. But now question comes that what will happen with the water hemp that emerged later? Because that will always be underneath the canopy. And uh, when you harvest your soybean, uh, would you be able to pick that weed species in your combine or inside your chaff stream? So that would be always be a challenge. And, you know, these weeds are uh, like Mother Nature gave them good uh, opportunity to evolve different characteristics. And they will, uh, they will develop some characteristics. Either they will grow really short and close to the ground so that they will never come inside your combine or they may start shattering the seeds early. So there is possibility that uh, you may select those uh, species or those type of the water hem for these type of technology. That's why it is always better idea to rotate and be diversified rather than just do certain things. Than focusing on just that one technology. Now, uh, you, you brought to mind a picture I saw and I think it was Ian Heap uh, who had a picture of barnyard grass and uh, it had developed growth characteristics similar to rice because they had done hand weeding in the rice paddies in I think it was Japan. But this barnyard grass took on characteristics and it looked dead near a, a rice plant in terms of you, you could barely distinguish the yep. two. So where there's a will, there's a way. And if we could use that same technology repeatedly, we're going we're gonna to see a, an issue eventually develop, um, particularly with, with a weed like water hemp that you're talking about it being just kind of perfect yep. for developing uh, different characteristics. So basically in Japan, uh, they used to uh, pick those uh, weeds from the rice by looking at the stem color. I think it was red in color. That's why they identify uh, their uh, weed species compared to the rice. But what happened is I think the weeds started mimicking the rice. I can remember that S thing. As selective well. breeding of weeds. <laughs> uh, all right. So, you know, the, the other interesting thing, um, and I back to your technology thought, is when you drive around the this countryside this time of year and you can see where we had escapes of weeds there, there are fields where there's some escapes, there are portions of fields, and then there's absolute train wrecks. And so it's kind of the scale of, you know, you start here with an occasional escape, uh, and then a patch, and then kind of we get to that train wreck status where it's just across the entire field. And a concept I've always found interesting that I don't think we get enough traction on for, for using is using mapping technology to create some weed maps and, you know, I know agriculture is big and a lot of farms are really huge, but if we could focus our hand roguing efforts on some of these areas where we start to develop occasional escapes, you know, to go back to that point using GPS and look for weeds in those areas, like that might be a, a, a useful technology for folks to kind of maximize their efficiency when we're looking at doing any kind of hand roguing. 
Yeah, I I absolutely agree with you. If you can identify those patches or the rows uh, earlier, that is always better. And that's why probably there's uh, remote sensing and aerial imagery technology is coming there. And that would be uh, beneficial. I don't know like how long it will take to get something commercialized, but uh, what I have heard, I think 20... 23 or 25, I forgot, there would be satellite imagery available. And if we are ready by that time uh, to analyze our field, I think that would be a neat tool to have in our toolbox. Something to work or look forward to maybe working with. And and I think another area that's going to be a real important uh, and very complicated area to deal with in the future, and in my position, I deal a lot with environmental issues uh, and and so I work a lot with issues related to fertilizer application and with tillage and when you talk about the things in the toolbox for weed management a lot of times they are in conflict with some of the <clears throat> excuse me some of the objectives related to that so for instance if you're if you're doing strip till well you probably took pre-plant incorporated herbicides off the table and so forth and so uh, as well as the complications that are going to be involved once we start getting more and more into using cover crops, uh, you know, and, and the implications uh, related to that. So I, I can see there's going to be a lot of uh, systems research that's going to be necessary also as we move into the future. Uh, because, Ryan, when, and I thought about this when you talked about the train wrecks, a lot of these train wrecks are caused because a farmer decided, well, I'm going to do X for tillage, and then suddenly it didn't jive with the weed control, and then it didn't work, you know, and, and so I, I think that's probably a part going to have to be a part of, of where we're headed in the future too, huh? Yeah, I mean, uh, definitely the crop management is not simple. I mean, it was never been simple, but nowadays with all the technology and all the traits uh, of the crops available, Things are really complicated. Now, you, I mean, just think about the weed management aspect. So you have to think about which trait of the crops you are planting, what are the herbicides you are planting, whether they are drift prone or not. Then you have to take keep the records and then you will encounter some of the uh, antagonism in your tank mix partners. So, so itself, the weed management is complicated. Now, if you think about your water management, nutrient management, planting time. So yes, I totally agree with you. And that's why we need more system-based approach rather than discipline-based approach. So, so discipline-based approach could be like do some something in weed management, but system-based approach would be bringing a team together and uh, work with that. And I'm really happy that I'm at uh, University of Minnesota where I saw that there is a big team and it's uh, there are multiple uh, team efforts going on uh, to uh, address the problem uh, by um, giving them like taking the system approach rather than the discipline approach i'm really fortunate enough enough to get this opportunity here well i think uh, i think we're going to have to sit down this winter and have a have another podcast brad and maybe get devlin and uh, seth in the same room and talk about some of these complexities of herbicide trait packages and uh, variety selection and it might make for an interesting discussion once we move forward into the year here and get a little more certainty on what technologies may or may not be available coming into the next growing season so yeah so we can definitely do that later uh, later this winter um, 
you mentioned Palmer Amaranth earlier that you've got some experience with Palmer kind of more in its its natural or native uh, land in southern United States where it where it south it came from southwest uh, United States in terms of it liking hot and dry conditions but it's moved into the corn belt and uh, and now it's uh, spread quite widely uh, across Iowa and now we've started to pick up some cases of it in in Minnesota and North Dakota um, any uh, insight on on where we're at in Minnesota with uh, with that weed and so uh, I'm part of that uh, Arish paste team with the Minnesota Department of Agriculture and UMN extension and we kind of meet every month and I listen to the effort uh, the team is putting together so I think so far uh, Minnesota is doing a great job so the Minnesota Department of Agriculture and our extension folks whenever they heard about any report of Palmer amaranth they just go out there uh, eradicate that plant from the field whether it is hand uh, pulling or whether it is uh, any chemical spraying they do that and they monitor that field for uh, next few years so so that's a really great approach and it it takes a lot of money and effort but still it is worth and I think um, that's why we are continuing doing that last three four years and uh, this year also we got I believe three to four reports of Palmer amaranth and most of them came from the feed stock from different mostly southern states and that's uh, pretty much the same story in Wisconsin and uh, North Dakota because I'm in touch with two of my colleagues in Wisconsin Rodrigo Worley and Joe Eichley in North Dakota and uh, they're telling basically uh, it's pretty much similar story in their states as well so yeah, I mean, uh, eventually this weed may uh, end up um, in our state, uh, like it, it is already in Nebraska, Iowa, uh, North Dakota, even some of the fields in Minnesota. But I think this effort, this collaborative effort is helping all of us, helping the stakeholders. And uh, we are always asking the uh, growers or uh, livestock uh, uh, farmers that if you have seen any uh, species that is similar to Palmer or you are suspecting it could be Palmer amaranth, please inform us because uh, it's nothing bad for you or we are not going to reveal all the information who you are, how it ended up having there, but it would be good for the state, good for your neighbor and uh, all the community so do, do we have enough experience with palmer to know that it is going to be completely winter hardy here in terms of uh, uh its its survival in the seed bank i guess i think about i mean there's obviously lots of weed species farther south that when you move north they just simply aren't a problem uh and of course this coming in from the south i mean obviously we don't take a lot of, uh, of uh, crop varieties or ornamental plants and so forth out of other climate zones and bring them here and try to grow them. They don't do well. Um, and there's good reason to have alarm over Palmer, but do we even know for sure whether it, it does actually have the potential or is the jury still out on that? No, I think uh, it has the potential because 
Uh, first thing is it is really closely related species to water hemp. If water hemp uh, can survive the Minnesota winter in the seed bank, I don't see any problem for Palmer amaranth to survive. And then you see the example of Michigan, New York, they already got Palmer amaranth and uh, the weeds are surviving there. Even I think North Dakota, some of the county, they have Palmer amaranth last year and again this year, they started seeing those uh, um, Palmer amaranth coming up. So. I don't see any problem for Palmer amaranth to survive the Minnesota winter. And it's, it's a diverse species and it has all the genetic diversity so it can survive uh, in any environment uh, according to me because it originated from uh, dry and hot weather and now uh, in Iowa, Michigan, New York and uh, other states it is surviving the winter. So. Uh, I think it's a pretty uh, stubborn weed, I would say. <laughs> it's got some of those same characteristics. It's an amaranthus, so it's it's uh, it's similar to your water hemp in terms of its diversity and its ability to kind of, you know, have that, uh, some of those same characteristics yep. that we were talking about earlier. Yep. Um, so, Devlin, you, uh, you started a research project already this summer. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about what you've got cooking for, for kind of heading into the winter here and, and still some time yet this fall for folks to, uh, to get out and help you with this project? And we'll put a link uh, in our podcast to this uh, uh, request that you've got out. But uh, maybe tell us a little bit about the project. So... Uh the weeds are, I told you that weeds are evolving resistance to multiple herbicides and it's always good idea to monitor those uh, resistant weed species uh, in the state at least so that we have information which part of the states we are struggling with, which weed species and to which herbicide groups they are resistant. And I talked about metabolic resistance. So uh, this will be really bad thing if we ended up having populations with metabolic resistance, which is, uh, I'm suspecting there might be some population. But anyway, so my goal for this fall is to uh, go out in the field or requesting the growers and extension folks to survey the fields where you see some of the weed escapes. So if you think that you got some uh, herbicide resistant weed species, whether it is water hemp or giant ragweed or uh, common ragweed or kochia, just uh, collect some of the seed heads and put them in a uh, brown paper bag and either drop it to some of our uh, local extension agents or just ship it to our Twin City address that Ryan will post underneath this uh, podcast so that uh, we can uh, screen them inside our greenhouse during the winter and spring time and we can get the result back to you. So my goal is to kind of map the whole state for different weed species and different resistance that is present. So I can tell you one thing, Ryan. So last last week I got a phone call from Northwest Minnesota and uh, he was our former extension educator, but he, he is retired now. So he called me and he told me that uh, there are some problem with water hemp that survived two times application of uh, Roundup and one time application of uh, dicamba. So that is very concerning. 
because these uh, dicamba and 240 resistance are coming and uh, in some of the states we are hearing that the dicamba resistant water hemp population is also resistant to 24D. So it will be really alarming and we need to be aware of that thing. So that's why my goal is to get the seed samples from the growers and from different parts of uh, from the state and screen them in the greenhouse for different herbicide like Roundup and glyphosate and uh, sorry Roundup and PPOs and dicamba and 24D so that we would be better prepared to serve the uh, state. So that's the goal for, as a U of M extension specialist. So, so you're doing a very uh, mechanical or lab-based uh, procedure now for your assays, sort of uh, grow them out, spray them, and then see what the, the impacts are? Well, I can describe the process. So the, there are three steps involved. Well, four steps. So first step is get the sample and grow them in the greenhouse. Uh, and spray them with a uh, field rate of certain herbicide and two times of the field rate of that herbicide. So that's the first step. If the uh, population survived or part of that population survived that 1x and two times application, then we will take that to second step, which is uh, dose-response bioassay, where we'll spray them with really low dose to really high dose, and we'll see where it stands, like what is the resistance level in that weed species. And then if uh, we see that this uh, population is really interesting and resistant to multiple herbicides, we will take that to the third step where we'll determine whether that is like mutation or that is metabolic resistance and what are the what is the mechanism of resistance. So that would be the third step. And the fourth step would be reporting the results. Uh, get back to the growers who submitted that sample or present that result in a uh, extension meeting or publish some uh, papers like um, peer-reviewed articles or extension articles. So that would be the last step. And just from a, a farmer perspective, it's quite a bit uh, valuable piece of information to know, you know, what kind of population of water hemp, for example, am I working with here? Is it resistant to the PPOs and the glyphosate or are there other things? So, yeah, I think that's a, that's going to be a great effort. And I, I really hope people help out by sending in samples so that uh, you can kind of get a really good idea of what might be happening across the state. So I, I think that's, uh, that's going to be really interesting. Yeah, you still have time to do that because I think harvesting is still going on. So I think we have one or two more weeks to uh, get the samples out of the field and send it to us. Yeah, excellent. So uh, one thing on my mind, I know uh, from different areas of the country, we've been hearing some uh, uh, reports of uh, resistance to these group 15 uh, uh, herbicides, which which we, we know and we like because uh, it, we tend to get enough rainfall in Minnesota to get them to work well. And uh, But they've been seeing some issues with this. Uh, are, do you intend to do any screening now with that or is that gonna be further down the road? Well, that is also part of the plan, but uh, 
for that uh, we need to know some certain information like if you have seen that your uh, water hemp or giant ragweed or common ragweed population survived the um, pre-emergence or residual herbicide application so that would be probably the first thing to know so yes that is also under our radar and uh, uh, we'll keep monitoring that but for that we need a little bit uh, more background information like uh, when did you see those weeds are surviving after pre's or only post because you know some weeds like water hemp that can emerge throughout the season they may not survive the pre-application but may survive your dicamba or roundup application so that we need to know but yes that is also under our radar and we'll continue to check that okay well good to know uh Anything else you guys uh, are thinking about today that you want to talk about? Well, I will just tell people that what I have learned last few years from my grad school and my professional activities that rotation is the key. If you rotate your technology, rotate your herbicide options, and rotate your tools, uh, probably you can uh, beat this weed species. Otherwise, if we rely on only one species, tool uh, it may not work for a longer period of time so we always tell uh, growers like follow the instruction of your label when you're applying your herbicide and rotate your herbicide technology and tools all right well well thanks Devlin it's been a pleasure talking today um, we're going to get back to enjoying some of the warm weather out here and uh, uh, with that uh, we want to say thanks for listening thank you